Hey y'all, this is Sherry Witt, and you're listening to Unashamed. Unashamed is our weekly podcast where we discuss everyday topics from a biblical perspective, as well as having special guests on to give their testimonies on how the Lord has worked in their lives. Our earnest prayer is that God will be lifted up, and this podcast can be used to further His kingdom. Now, on with the show, y'all. For the cause of Christ, I'll Hey y'all, thanks for joining us this week on Unashamed. This week we have the conclusion of Jessica's story, a life of destruction to a life of redemption. Warning, you might need tissues. Enjoy! I was out on the streets and a car goes by. It goes by a few times. And it's a fancy car in my opinion. It was a little two-seater car, convertible. And to this moment, right now, I can see the man's face in that car. Because it was an angel. I get in his car and we're talking, you know, and I'm being this sassy, you know, Miss Know-It-All, you know, because I'm, I'm Queen Bee, remember? You know, I'm Queen Bee. I had so much arrogance and so much cockiness that it's just so sad. It's so pitiful. So I'm talking to him and he calls me out and, what are you doing here? Literally just, what are you doing? What are you doing in Vegas with this hillbilly accent, this white girl skin? What, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? And stuff started coming out of my mouth that you don't say when you're doing what you do. You're not supposed to do this, but it did. I told him, just, I just want to go home at this point, but I don't want to call my mom. So I told him. I told a complete stranger. He says, well, you give me two weeks, and I'll get you moved out of where you're at, and we'll get you in a safer place, and I'll get you a job. You know how many times you heard that? Because they just want you to feel safe and feel like, oh, you know, and that's all they want, you know? Well, I stayed with him for the whole weekend, and... He took me to dinner and we enjoyed our time together and he was a really genuine nice person. And he takes me back to my apartment, he pays my rent, and he leaves. And I'm thinking, I am never going to see that angel again. Never. I was like, maybe I just, you know, overthought it, right? And two weeks later, the phone rings. And I'd like to say that the guy who answered it wasn't my pimp, but we all know that he was. And he asked me if this guy was about money or if it was about stupid stuff, which I don't even know what kind of stupid stuff would be stupid at this point. The whole lifestyle was. And I told him he was. I was impressed that the dude had called back. And he picked me up. I met him at the IHOP. And... This man picked me up and he said, well, let's go hang out for the weekend. So we hung out for the weekend and the end of the weekend, he says, you ready to go get your stuff? And the fear of God set into me. 
Maybe it wasn't fear of God. It was the fear of Las Vegas. Fear of four bloods. And I said, sure. And he drove me over to the apartment. And both gates that go into the apartment, because the apartment's just one great big square. It almost looks like a meatloaf that you take the center out. Okay. And it has a swimming pool in the center. And then when you come through the gate, you go in and you go up the stairs and stuff. And it just looks like a big like rectangle square like thing. Well, both of those gates are locked on a daily, all day basis. And when I show up, the gate's not locked. I don't have to get anybody's attention to let me in. That's miracle number one. Mm-hmm. Got in undetected. Because once you're in a gang, no matter how small of a part you are, you don't leave them. I mean, it's not a cliche. It's not a, a thing for the movies. It's real life. That part's, that part's real. Yeah, yeah, that part's real. And once they believe that they own you, it's a, you don't really have free will no more. So, I go in and... I have a lump in my throat right now telling story. There's four men that I live with. Nobody's never not home. There's always someone in that apartment. And if they're not in that apartment, they're in an apartment in that building. And it's not hard to see people come and go. So if I'm going to do this, I need to get in, get it done, get out, and get out safe. Alive is what I'm thinking. So I go up to the stairs and I go up and I go in and I've already been gone for three days. And there's a little sticker on the doorknob and it says that they haven't paid rent yet. So that makes it even worse on me because I'm the rent payer, okay? So if that's not been done yet, they're really gonna be mad at me. So I try the knob and it's unlocked and I turn it ever so slightly because I just, I guess, I'm trying to prolong whatever's going to happen after I open this door. But once I open the door, there's not a soul in sight. There's no one in there. There's no music playing. There's nothing going on. So I have never worked so fast in my life. I took three hampers, put every piece of clothing in there, my favorite blanket, I think I know that I had my family photo album that my mom had just put together for me that Christmas before, and I left the apartment. Oh, and by the way, I stole every bit of their weed. (laughs) Sorry, but that I kind of giggle at. I stole every bit of their weed, and I'm talking all the way down to their roaches, to the real, everything. That I left that apartment with every piece of speck of weed. It's a long story, but it's funny on my part. But anyway... When I walk out, I take all three baskets, put them out the door. One by one, I take them down the stairs. And then one by one, they go out the gate. I get to the last stretch. I've, have, I've got the last basket, and I'm getting ready to go out the door for the last time. And the downstairs apartment door opened where we all hang out all the time. And the mom of that apartment came out. And she shut that door so fast that I swear somebody's fingers could have came off. And she says, are you leaving? And I said, and I, 
I just, I, I said yes, but I don't think it came out right. Because all I know is I was shaking so bad it looked like I was telling her yes. And she says, they are in there. They're about to come out. They're about to go looking for you. And I turned, and I'm telling you, it was probably, I'm not good with distance, but probably the length of a truck. A lar- like a F-150 from the distance I had to leave and I took two steps and was out the door. I was gone and in that car and I never looked back and my guardian angel, as I call him to this day, I'm not going to say his name, he took me to his house, I moved in there, he got me a job, he got me off meth, he took me shopping and let me get clothes that made me look presentable to the world. He didn't promise me riches. He didn't promise me that he was going to marry me and love me for the rest of my life. He took action in my life and he stepped up when he saw something was wrong. Thank you, God, for him. I stayed with him for a few months because in my head, I thought he was going to fall in love with me. We were going to be together forever. (laughs) But in all reality, God gives you people for reasons and seasons. And that's the truth. He uses people as tools on this earth. And that man was one of his biggest tools in my life. Um, in November, we found out we were pregnant. And he did want me to terminate the pregnancy. And of course, I wanted to please him. I... I don't know how to explain this. Um, I was laying in bed one day and got... It felt like somebody was trying to cut out my ovary from the inside. Like a little gnome was in there just cutting away at me. And I don't, I, I, to this day, it's the worst pain I've ever been in. And I've been in a lot of physical pain. But this one takes the cake. It was so bad that we ended up going to a clinic to get an ultrasound. They gave me a pregnancy test and it came back positive, but when they gave me the ultrasound, there was no baby. It was weird. I never had anything like that. But she says, you need to go to the hospital, the emergency room. I'm calling them right now. You need to drive there now. Your baby is not in your uterus. That means that there is something wrong because you have hormones that are saying you're pregnant. They explained that there is a possibility that the baby could be a tubal pregnancy and stuck in my tube. And that if that is so, that it could lead to serious complications and even death. And this is in 2006. I'm 25 years old. Just had my 25th birthday. And hadn't seen my kids in six months. Hadn't heard their voices. acted as if I was no mother at all, to be honest. So, when I walked out of the clinic and I got into the vehicle with my guardian angel, I said, I'm not going to the hospital tonight. You can take me in the morning. I want to go home and smoke a joint. I had to get high first. And that was my mindset with every single thing in my life. No matter what it was, I I had to get high first with everything that I did. So we went back to his house and 
I waited. I didn't take the doctor's advice and I waited. So the next morning, he goes to work and his mom drops me off at the emergency room. And you absolutely have to leave this part in. Anyone who complains about the wait time in any Decatur County Hospital, I'm going to let you guys know that when you are in a city of millions of people, your wait time is two full-time jobs. <laughs> I was there for 16 hours. Wow. I was in that emergency room with 16 hours waiting just to be brought back. Just to be brought back. You haven't even seen, by, haven't hadn't seen even a doctor? Hadn't even seen a doctor, nothing. And once they took me back there and they read my chart and they, they did another ultrasound to confirm they couldn't find the baby, they let me sit there for a little while and a woman in this cute little hairnet comes in and says, so, we're having surgery. And I burst into tears because I'm 2,000 miles away from my family. The man that I live with isn't with me. I'm completely alone. I've never had a major surgery or any kind of surgery. And you want your mommy? And I wanted my mommy. <laughs> There's many times there was a mouse incident I wanted my mommy in. There was a couple of incidents that got pretty bad I wanted my mommy. But this incident right here, I wanted my mom so bad. I had had a C-section with Hagen because, like I said, he was stubborn. But I never really, and, and my grandmother was there and my mother was there. So I was calm. They were there. They had me. Well, I was on my own. 16 hours sitting there thinking I was just going to go home with some belly aches or something, some kind of gas problem. No, they have to remove a child from my belly because my body didn't do what it was supposed to do. And I'd never had that happen before. My body not do what it was supposed to do. So was it a tubal? Yeah. Okay. And the moment that they had put... They had to open me in three, they just, they just put a little tiny incision to put the cameras in me to find him. But the moment that they put an incision over my left ovary, he exploded. And they had to put a tube inside of my body to eject all of what was in there. And it can become toxic. And the next thing I remember after, you know, laying on that table was hearing the words, if you open your eyes, I'll take the tube out of your mouth, which was the most horrible sentence I had ever heard because at this point I couldn't breathe and I couldn't understand what they were telling me until the third time they said it. So finally my eyes opened and then all of a sudden I could, I, I'm, a, I'm alive again. I, like I said, I never had surgeries. I never had one of those thingies down my throat that they took my life away with. I mean, they had all control over me. I, I need to calm down. <laughs> so I open my eyes and I'm waking up and I'm barely awake and the next thing I remember is this the surgeon the doctor himself leaning over me saying I've been waiting for you since last night you had a three percent chance at coming off of my table this morning and that was if I had showed up when he was there when I was supposed to so I had a 97% chance if I had showed up on time of dying and I waited not only all night but another 16 hours to get the surgery. So there was a very, like, I, that was the moment I had decided I wanted to go home. And I told my guardian angel I wanted to go home. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll buy you a ticket and 
on Friday when I get paid and I'll send you home. And mind you, I've already been in contact with my family all throughout the time of staying with my guardian angel. He had already reconnected me with all of them. He had, I mean, he really, really did help me get so much more control over myself. So I said, no, I don't want to leave until after New Year. I want to be in Vegas for New Year. Because my favorite thing about Decatur County was Halloween. And that was because we would go to Adams to go trick-or-treating at my grandma Iris' house. And we would do it there in that town. And on the way home, it would be dark. And on the way home from Adams, you could see all the lights of town. And it, and it always took my breath away as a child to see all the sparkly lights and just the twinkle and... It was just so beautiful, and it was it was captivating me, and that's why I loved Vegas at night. So I wanted to see fireworks in Vegas. So I stayed. And when I told him why, he said, oh, well, the fireworks are going to be nothing compared to this. And he takes me to this mountain where there's this dead-end road. You go up the mountain, there's a dead-end road. You turn around and you park. And at nighttime, it's better than the stratosphere. It's better than anything you've ever seen in Vegas, unless you've seen it from that point. Because you're on this mountain, and for all the eyes could see, you see sparkly lights. And it's just this beautiful scenery. And you can see the other mountains, and it's, 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 it's majestic. And I'm telling you, God's there. So I got to tour a lot of Vegas in such an amazing way right before I came home. And the night of New Year's Eve, oh my gosh, we were on the strip and there was a million people, or a million people, a hundred thousand people on one street in the city at one time. And there was absolutely no way of stopping. You could stand still, but the crowd kept moving, so you just kept bobbing along. And you were just tight quartered and we shared a bottle of champagne and I got to see, I was at Bellagio is where it was and I got to see their little light display and all the pretty colors that they turned the water and it was just so beautiful. Once I left the major sin in my life in Vegas, I found so much of God there. When I first got there, I felt like it was just Satan everywhere, and it was just people that... I'm going to tell you two incidents. One, I was going to do laundry at my apartment building one day in Vegas, and I had to go get changed. So when I walked from the laundry department in our apartment building through the pool area into the office, there was a man passed out. This is late February, early March. No, it, it's mid-March, I remember, because I just remember, yeah, I just remember. So, I, uh, on my way back, all the people in the, uh, in the laundromat are staring at him, and when I come in, they're like, he don't live here, he's drunk and passed out, he shouldn't be here. Well, I went outside and sat and put my feet in the water, because it was so nice, and he got in the water and he drowned and died. And I dove into six feet water and I remember pushing him up to the top and someone, I remember seeing like one, two, or there's about three or four people standing on the edge of this pool watching a five foot one girl 
hold up a 200 plus pound man in the six foot water and nobody offered to help me pull him out. And I had to tell them, I had to command them to grab him and pull him out of the pool. And they did. And as I'm coming up out of the pool at the ladder, they're talking about how nobody knows CPR, nobody's going to touch him, just call 911. And I'm thinking, you're going to just watch this man die. So I go over there, and just months before this, I was CPR certified. This is insane. And I start CPR. And he's not doing well. He's got slobber and grossness all over his mouth, and it's getting on mine, and... I'm not enjoying my time with this man, I don't know. I'm not a lie. <laughs> and I lean back and I'm in so much of a panic of this man dying that for the first time in my true life, I called out God. I called him and said, please God, let this man breathe. And that's all I said. But I had never done it with so much conviction and belief inside of my soul. And when I leaned forward to give him another breath, he just started breathing. Water started coming out of his mouth. God let him breathe. His name was James. It was a Tuesday. He thought it was still Sunday. And I pray every day that he's okay. And then he got help for his alcohol. Another situation. Now that was my very, very first 30 days in Vegas. Still naive, still Indiana girl. Now let's fast forward about four or five months and I'm going to the check-in to go so I can go cash my check. And I'm walking past this bus stop and there's a good six, seven people sitting there waiting for the bus and there is a man laying on the curb, head in the street, feet on the sidewalk, convulsing, foaming from the mouth. And I'm very ashamed to say the rest of the story, but I'm going to. I had been so conditioned by what was going on and what was around me and the, and the evil that was, I was living in that when I called 911 for help, because I did do that, she asked me to pull him off of the road and I refused because I didn't want to get whatever was on him on me. That's not Christian. I could have grabbed his legs. I could have pulled him up there. Instead, I continued to walk. To go cash my check as I was calling 911. When I came out and was finished, 911 was there. Your surroundings, 1000%, has everything to do with what kind of person you're going to be. If you let your surroundings take the God, take your faith in God away, you're not going to be the person He's put you here to be. And I wasn't. God's put me here for so many more purposes than just the few I've spoke about. So, I take a bus home to Indiana. I've lost 82 pounds. So, I'm a 166, size 11, haven't been this size since before my first pregnancy. I get to Indiana and my mom and my stepdad are still together. Our house had done burnt down, they built the cabin. Both my boys are still living with their dads. Hagen's still with Jenny and Brandon, of course, and I'm still just me. As soon as I come home and I'm back living at my stepdad's house, I gain all that weight back. So, 
I'm not keeping a job. I'm still rebellious. I'm still doing what I want when I want. 2008 comes along and I've got my own apartment, but my dad, my real dad, he has to pay for it pretty much. I have to call him every time I have to pay rent because I'm not, I'm drinking my money away and buying a bag of weed or, you know, stupid stuff. Not seeing my kids as often as I can because, well, they're better off without me anyways, which is just another excuse that Satan gave me to use. And Satan's father of all lies. That's right. And if excuses are lies, then Satan is the father of all the excuses I've used. Yeah, I see the tattoo. She's got a tattoo of excuses, excuses are, are lies. lies. And that's because I'm 38 years old and I've used so many excuses. Oh, well, you're a mom now. There's no way you're going to be able to go to college and be a lawyer. You can't move to New York with a little baby and a husband. You can't do this. Well, how are you ever going to finish college if, if you can't concentrate longer than 10 minutes at a time? Or your depression is going to keep you so bottled up, you might as well isolate at home. Nobody wants to hang around with a Debbie Downer. These are the things I've told myself all my life so I could just stay right where I was. Now, mind you, I'm going to remind you guys that I asked Jesus Christ into my heart a long time ago. So his Holy Ghost has been in me. Oh, boy. And when that happens, conviction comes, you guys. It comes. You know how you get angry at someone when they start to talk about something you did and it wasn't really right? And you're like, oh, well, I didn't do that or... Oh, I don't know why your feelings are hurt. I didn't mean it that way. Well, you sure said it that way. Or you sure acted that way. Well, let me tell you something. That attitude you guys are showing the world is your conviction. It took a long time for me to learn that. The attitude I gave my parents when they wanted to correct me, that was my conviction. My self-conviction. That was the Holy Spirit inside of me telling me, You're messing up, girl. You acting a fool. Your mama need to knock you out. Well, after so many ignorings, you can't, you, you, you don't, you can't run. I ran to Vegas, God followed me. I ran to Florida once, God followed me. I ran to bed after bed after bed, God followed me. Drug after drug after drug, on the floor of my bathroom, vomiting my intestines out my throat, God followed me. And you know what? He's following you guys too. Everywhere, he's following you. Just because you don't want to hear him or talk to him doesn't mean he's not there. So I'm back home drinking, using drugs. And at this point, I've gotten meth, coke, opium, marijuana, alcohol. I mean, you name it. The only thing I've never done is, is a needle, and that's just because I'm a very big baby. Drinking, and like I said, every drug, I'm, I'm ready to try anything that's going to numb how I feel about myself. So, I start working at Walgreens, and I start meeting some really awesome people, and one of them... became very, very dear to my heart, and she knows who she is. The whole world knows who she is. Um, 
I became friends with a lady who had had a transplant, a pancreas transplant. She was very young, very young, early 20s. She had many health problems. She was in and out of the hospital. She had diabetes, the transplant, medications all the time. And she's young. So she's probably extremely angry at her own body. She can't have children at this time. She She's really upset, you know. And the worse that we are on our body, the worse our body is on us. And it was just a vis- vicious cycle for my friend. But I always knew that God had a plan for her. That he had babies in the wait for her. And the moment that I had shared my story with her about Hagen, she had asked me to have a baby for her. And God said, God said, no. God said, I have this. This is all under control. It's all in my timing. I really wanted to help her, though. I really thought that that's what my job was to do. Even though I I heard God's word and was listening to him, I just ignored it anyways. So I set out on a very drunken, very drug-filled mission to have a baby, but figure it out how I could do it for her. Because, I mean, I did it once before, and it made me feel so purposeful, made me feel so alive and so needed and so fulfilling that I just needed that feeling again. It was another drug. It was another numb it, exchanged my old feelings for this feeling for a short time. Well, I met a friend. He was actually my dealer. He would sell me my weed. He, if he didn't have any weed, he'd give me Xanaxes to keep me calm and keep my anxiety down. Well, <laughs> one day we're talking and I tell him the story about how Twilight can't have any babies. And he says, well, I'll get you pregnant. It's really? I mean, we're already sleeping together. So in my drunken, drugged idea, it was a genius idea, right? Me and Twyla, we'll have this baby, and this man won't be a part of this baby's life, and we, we'll have this baby, and she and I will raise it, and everybody thought we were stupid. We weren't stupid. We were just trying to fix it. Two broken girls is what we were trying to do. So I get pregnant. And I tell him, so he's X'd out of the situation instantly, because I was the deal. As soon as I got pregnant, he was gone, and Twyla and I would have this baby. Then God started convicting me, and he said, I told you, you're not giving her a baby. God said that he had a plan for Twyla, and that, that's all there is to it, and I'm not, I'm not involved in that part of the plan. It's not very easy to accept the fact that where you want to be needed, you're not. Sometimes where you want to be wanted, you're not. And I, that, that was a very hard part of my, that was hard. So I'm pregnant. It's Christmas of 2009, Christmas day, literally. Mind you, this is pregnancy number seven. I haven't talked about all of them, okay? There's one other one I haven't talked about. So I wake up Christmas morning of 2009 and I said, put my feet on the carpet and grabbed my stomach and I said oh my goodness I am pregnant and she's a girl because mind you I've had all boys my brothers had all girls (laughs) and I really wanted this baby there was just something about it God 
gave me this feeling inside of me that everything was going to be different. That I that this was the start of a new different. Which I've been there, you know, at that crossroads so many other times. Okay, so Josie's born. And I, I, before she was born, I break the news to Twyla that I can't let her adopt the baby. Because God says that he's got your babies. Well, that's not very easy for someone to take. People don't like hearing God's messages sometimes. It makes them mad. And she was around, but there was tension. So... I surrounded myself with people who smoked pot and drank and partied and thought that I could continue to be a good mom to Josie. Well, I never quit smoking pot. Nowadays, you don't get away with that. So we got put on CPS when she was born. I went six months without smoking. I tried very hard. As soon as we were off CPS, I started smoking pot again. It's the only thing that has ever been able to calm me until this year. In Josie's early years, I started to repeat the beginning of Parker's life with her. I was drinking, doing drugs. The man that I was with when she was born, because I did end up meeting somebody, and we ended up making and building a beautiful life together. We ended up in a real home, not a trailer, an apartment. I mean, we started out in an apartment, and there's nothing wrong with either of those. It's just, you know, you want to be, you, your goals change as you get older. And I wanted not just a couch to lay on anymore, you know. So, I met an amazing man. And to this day, I'll, I'll love him forever for what he did and who he made me into. But I met him when I was pregnant with Josie. He was at her ultrasound. We started out in this tiny little bedroom, one bedroom apartment to the point to where when you sat on the couch, you could lean forward and turn the channel on the TV. There was no, it was one little path for everything. That was it. It was so tiny. We built up to a bigger apartment when Josie was born and he was there when she was born. He held her first and he loved her like he was her daddy. Oh, he loved her. He loved her so much he let me tattoo her name on his back. And he did, too. He gave her all her cute little nicknames that I still call her to this day. Stinky McNasty was our favorite. <laughs> and he was a good dad to her. Josie's born. I'm engaged to this wonderful man who provides, goes to church, started going back to church with Josie. And this man was totally for it, came to church with us. Throughout my entire pregnancy, my brother was in prison for a meth charge. I felt very abandoned because we had always been each other's rocks. You know, if I had something going on and I could call him, he'd be there in a heartbeat. And it was the same for him and I. We've always been each other's solid. That's it. Well, my brother did not meet my daughter until she was two months old. And I think that nine months right there changed my brother. My brother and I... I'm not the only one in this, in this situation that had a self-destructive life. My brother lived a self-destructive life his whole life. And he has his own story. And I feel wholeheartedly that if, if you're raised in a home that does not project a commitment to God, then that's, you're going to have that happen. Okay, so we're living this wonderful dream of a family. And I started smoking pot again. And then they came out with this really 
horrible thing. I don't even want to romanticize it now. Um, they came out with spice, which is what they called a legal weed. And I'm gonna. I, I'm not sitting here saying that marijuana is the greatest thing in the world. It is definitely, in large sums, it can be life destroying. It really can. You 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 turn it into your god if you turn it into an addiction, and that's an idol. Period. Mm-hmm. Anything that comes before your prayer becomes comes before your God. That's an idol, guys. If you wake up and you watch TV before you pray, you, you're idolizing that TV. If you wake up and smoke a joint in the morning before you open your Bible, guys, that's an idol. So with that being said, I idolized everything all my life. My mom always told me I wasn't supposed to be raised in the world and live like the world. I was supposed to be raised in the world and live like God and it's like, live like Jesus. And I didn't quite understand that. And I got angry at God for the longest time for putting me here even. Like, why put me here to fail? I've always felt like I was being put in life to fail. I felt like my, my family thought I was a failure and it was always going to be. That God put me here to be a failure. So that's what I did my whole life. I didn't try hard at anything because I always knew I was going to fail at it. So we start smoking this legal weed is what they call it. And it was the worst thing that ever I've ever experienced. I've been in toxic relationships. I've been on the streets of Las Vegas. I've been homeless to where I was on everybody's couches. Not being able to wake up and open my eyes before I realized where I was. Because I couldn't remember whose couch I was on. I've been drunk and just awful. But this drug right here was the worst I've ever been on. I lost all control. I started going and getting in dumpsters looking for scrap metal. I started going dumpster diving. I mean, it, it was the filthiest part of my life. Just to get just to get money, money so you could so go. I could go to the store and buy this stuff off the shelves. It was literally so addictive. It would be, in my opinion, I've never tried heroin, and by God's grace, I won't. Um, What they put on the shelves, what the government allowed us to partake in, it literally was life-taking. I lost my home, my fiancé, every piece of item I have ever owned is gone. I don't have my kids' baby books. Um, I literally left that house with my child, both my vehicles, and my clothes. Like, I didn't leave with anything. And another guardian angel was there to help me move out of that situation. And he took care of me and my daughter while I was on this drunken stupor of depression. And that's when I went to my grandmother. And I said, Grandmother, why am I so defective? Why can't I get it right? Why can't I make a good life for me and my kids? What is wrong with me for me to be so defective? And I'll remember her words till the day I go home to her in heaven. You are not defective, my sweet child. You are grieving your sons. Grandma, my sons are alive. And you gotta remember, my my downhill behavior really started 
the outrageous, you know, not caring what others thought behavior started when the boys were taken. That was my mindset of I'm allowed to do what I want, when I want, how I want. That's not a Christian mindset. So when she explained to me that I was grieving my son, she explained to me that something does not have to die to grieve it. It could be a relationship. It can be your children being taken away from you or you giving up your children because it was both cases in my case. So when she educated me on what grief really, you know, can be, I started educating me on what it was. I started researching grief and I started learning that it was waves of bad days and, and bad decisions and so a little bit of me changed, but not much. That was a stepping stone of changing. In 2013, I hit another meth episode. Josie was very young. Twyla had come and gotten her, and she was keeping her from here to there, weeks at a time, maybe even a few weeks. When you're on meth, time is not of the essence. So I was with another man, of course, and it was a toxic relationship. It was an abusive relationship on both of our parts again. It was never one-sided in all my life. I've never just sat and gotten beaten. Trust me. It's always been a two-sided toxic moment. I am a toxic person. I am manipulative. I lie. I have stolen. I've murdered. I've... I have done so much sin in my life that I never thought I could come back to God. Satan had me so convinced that, that, that no one wanted me, that my kids didn't want me, that my mom didn't want me, that my dad didn't want me, that God could never forgive some of the things that I had done. Well, I'm here alive today only on the reason that I'm supposed to tell you that he does. Oh, he does. And how sweet and glorious it is. So in this toxic relationship, I helped a man burglarize an elderly woman's home. And I'm telling you what, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, guilt is the most horrible thing to come along. Oh my gosh, you guys. So the guilt ate me up so much that not only did I snitch him out, but I snitched myself out. Threw us both under the bus, went to a battered women's shelter, begged them to put us both in jail to make up for our crime, and they literally told us to just stop calling. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They told me to stop calling. So I'm in a battered women's shelter. My daughter is staying between Twyla's house and my parents' house, and I'm trying to get mentally back on on. That Mother's Day, someone had showed up at the battered women's shelter and dropped off some gift certificates for the mothers there. I was one of two moms there. And they gave us a gift certificate to get a pedicure. And I got to get a pedicure, and she'll probably never listen to this podcast, but I truly am to this day very appreciative of that gift certificate. Because the day that I sat in that salon and put my feet in that water and the lady gave me my pedicure, I sat and thought about all the things that the young Jessica had hopes and goals for. All those big dreams and ideas and plans that she had had. The debates about 
all the ways you could get away from having an abortion without... You don't have to have an abortion. You know how many ladies I know that want babies? I'm so angry at God for letting me have so many babies and pregnancies. I didn't think it was fair for me to have that joy and that gift and not deserve it. I still question it sometimes, but then I'm reminded that I'm sitting here telling my story for the first time, and that's the whole point of everything he put. He walked with me through. God didn't put me through anything. Sin is its own punishment world. It's not karma. It's not the universe. It is sin. God does not punish us for our sins. He allows sin to punish us. And I promise you that. Just, just keep an eye out. It'll show you. Spend too much money at the bar, you ain't got your bill money. Sin is its own punishment. You guys might call it karma and all this other stuff, but it's God telling you you're doing wrong. He just lets it back and watches us, and he says, yeah, well, my book tells you what's going to happen if you do that. So, I'm out there. And I'm trying to find the best me that I can find. And I start going to therapy. And I'm sitting in this room with this lady and I can see her face to this day. And if she's not a guardian angel, I don't know what is. And I'm sitting in this meeting with her and I tell her, you know, I tell her from jump everything I've ever been through. Some of the things I have not covered here. Some of the things I don't know if I ever will cover. I probably will. But I tell her everything. And, of course, I cry, and I throw my fits, and I, I, I let all the emotion out that has been in there. I said things in that room that I didn't even know I was feeling. And when it all came out, and I told her, I said, all my family just thinks that I'm just this overly emotional victim that walks around just wanting sympathy and pity. And she says, oh, honey, no. You have PTSD. And you have, you are manic bipolar and you have anxiety. And when she said all of that, it validated everything I'd ever, ever, ever felt because it had a name. So, of course, the first thing she wants to do is give me all these medicines. Okay, well, I need them. I need all these medicines to keep me from exploding on my family and keep me from being overly emotional and keep me from having these manic episodes and the, and the manic highs and the manic lows and my family going through all this turmoil. Mind you, I'm single. I've been beaten on. My body is broken down. My spirit is so lost and the Holy Spirit is going, are we ever going to get back to God? So I start medicating. This time, not self-medicating. This time, I'm going to be on the right path. I don't have room for mistakes. I got to take care of me. So I'm taking all these meds. And all those emotions go to flatline. And that's all fine and dandy because then the manic lows are not so bad. And then people aren't freaking out because I'm too hyper and stuff. I'm just on this, you know, not even a medium. It's a low, just dull flatline. So what's Jessica do? She gets upset again. And she don't like those feelings. So she stops making, taking those meds and starts self-medicating again. And by 2014, I'm with Zach. We're dating. I'm madly in love. And I start taking Dilata. And if 
many of you don't know, Dilaudid is a very strong painkiller. It is hydromorphine. I can literally sell it on the street as synthetic heroin for people who can't find their heroin at that time. When you start taking this, all the body aches go away. Oh, I love that part. That, that part I will romanticize about because my body hurts a lot. So when you're pain-free, it's great. But then it starts to feel too good. And then you start to numb again. And then you get married without a wedding and you call your mom and you say, Mom, I just got married at the courthouse and she cries. She didn't get her only daughter away. And so you've disappointed her and broke her heart all over again. And, oh, I forgot to even tell you the biggest part of it. In 2012, sorry guys, I, I know it's not in order. I knew I should have brought my paper. But in 2012, my mom divorced my stepdad, you guys. Oh, so she... She left him. When it had absolutely nothing to do with me and my brother. And it helped no one. She left him. And got back with my real dad. When it only benefited the two of them. They got back together. And that was my mindset. I'd pushed it my whole life. Mom, dad misses you. Dad, mom misses you so bad. Talking about how, you know, I'd lie to them every weekend that I was with my dad. I'd put words in their mouths to each other that just wasn't true. I did everything I could to get her. And this is before the violation. So, my brother got really sick in 2012. March 29th, 2012, my brother got real sick. And mind you, all my family smokes cigarettes. I don't. I can't stand them. So, we're thinking, it's pretty bad. He can't breathe in. His lungs are killing him. His ribs are killing him. He couldn't move. He goes to the hospital, Decatur County Hospital, gives him a joke of an answer. And he's scared. And my brother does not just come out and say, hey, I'm scared. He says, so so the sister has to kick in and I am my brother's keeper. Right. So what's sister do? Call mom. So I call my mom at work and I say, hey, Daniel's sick. He doesn't need you to leave now, but he wants you to meet him after work and go to the hospital with him. Okay. Now, mind you, this is during our spice era. This is on that illegal spice, weed stuff, messing all our lives up. And my mom and my stepdad were on a very rocky, rocky ship. Okay. It just rocked back and forth. He never wanted her smoking pot. And she did behind his back. She would hide. Okay. It's okay. God says that he will defend me. And I believe with all my heart, he will defend me. So she would hide behind his back. Well, then she started smoking the legal weed because, and the biggest thing about it was we could get high and still pass a drug test. And that's huge with drug takers. I mean, they are. We yeah, really, you don't have to pay. You don't have to pay anyone to. Yeah, you and, and I've yeah. never had to pay anyone. You know, until they illegalized it about selling urine. I never even thought about selling clean urine. I would have been a clean person if I'd ever thought about that. I got so mad when they illegalized that. I was like, man, I could have been advertising clean pee. Yeah, I would have never been broke. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I shouldn't be making jokes. I'm not supposed to glor- romanticize this this behavior. Okay. So, 
when we all started smoking this, it was a huge difference in our personalities, our educational levels, our frontal lobe memories, or our memories and frontal lobe decision making. We just became, I'm not allowed to say that word no more, but very mentally just not right. So it wasn't just you. Oh no, it was my mom, my brother, my sister-in-law, everybody around me. I, I was completely against drugs growing up until the moment I said, if I can't beat them, I'll join them. So I go through all this. I go through therapy, but I've never been consistent or committal, so I didn't go through it. I didn't finish it all the way. I stopped taking meds. I stopped doing everything. Well, I'll go to church, quit going to church. Start going back to church, quit going to church. I've never been committal. Honest to God, the first, the only time... The only reason I stayed single my whole life was because I knew that I wouldn't be able to commit to a husband. I knew that. And I wasn't going to put a ring on my finger. And with all the sins I've committed, adultery was, for some reason, adultery wasn't one that I was willing to cross. That was a no-no. Yeah. I mean, I've had an abortion and murdered a baby. I've, you know, done all these drugs. I've lied. I've stole. I've disrespected my family. I've had idols before God. I've taken God's name in vain by telling people I'm a Christian and not acting like one. That is taking God's name in vain. I've done all of this, but adultery was one I just, I couldn't step across. Well, let me tell you something. No matter how much your convictions are, you are willing to step across lines. Okay, so in 2013, I go to therapy. I start working on me. 2014, I meet Zach. We start dating. Within six months, Zach and I got married. But you knew Zach. Cause you guys... I knew Zach from fifth grade. did you grade. Guys graduate together? No, Zach didn't stay to graduate. Oh, okay. I did graduate. I, I guess I didn't say that either. I did graduate, a high school graduate, <laughs> with a two-year or a one-year-old son. Yeah, he was one year, one year and like two weeks old when I graduated high school. I did graduate, but I still have yet to pursue any other college classes and actually graduate. I have tried, but again, the commitment problem, I've failed. Now, Zach and I get together, and I start doing the the pain pills again. And I have been off pain pills since Josie was born. I know that I hit the meth world, and I know that I've been smoking pot this whole time, but I had been off the pain pill world for the four and a half, four years, okay, that Josie was born. And I want to make the point of saying that Christmas morning when I found out she, I was pregnant with her, the night before was my last pill. And I woke up knowing that if I kept taking pain pills, that A, this baby could come out deformed, and B, addicted. And I didn't want that. And I wasn't going to have that. And I didn't. I was able to stop. And those few weeks of withdrawals and living on my sister-in-law's couch pregnant. I thought I was going to lose that baby and die. Withdrawing from drugs is, is it's God's way of bringing you to him. When you're on the floor of a toilet and you are, you literally think you're going to vomit till you die or, or, or poop yourself till you die. There's only one way out of this, and that's through God. And, and until I gave him everything I am and have and was, I couldn't do anything without him. I couldn't do it without him. And I have to say that again. I have never been able to commit, finish, or do anything without God.
So, Zach and I got together. My addiction got really bad, and by 2015, it was overboard. I was up to about 32 milligrams of morphine a day. That's a lot of morphine to be functioning on, okay? Um, they come, the pills that I was taking were four milligrams a piece. That's eight pills a day. And I didn't care. I was stealing them. I stole medication from my grandmother back in 2007 to 2009 when I found out I was pregnant with Josie. That's where I got my pills before. And every time it was, I'm not an addict. I don't have to pay for them. But you're walking into your grandmother's home, into her bedroom, putting your hand in her pill bottle and taking handfuls at a time. I was going to Walgreens with two pockets full of Xanax Flexoril, which is a muscle relaxer, and Darvocets and Vicodin. That's four different narcotics, okay? That's four different pills. And they were, I'm talking Skittles. Like, you know, you have a handful of Skittles, you put them in your pocket or something. I'm sure nobody does that. But that's what it was like. Just a handful of Skittles in each of my pocket. And by the time I was done with a seven to eight hour shift, my pockets were empty. There were nights that when I went home to my apartment, I vomited, laid down in my bed, thought I got my life right with God because that's not how you do it. And thought I was meeting my maker before sunrise. And then I would open my eyes in the morning and say, wow, I'm alive. Let's go do it again. Because it didn't work that time. So you're just stuck in a vicious cycle. A vicious cycle. And I thought, well, one day God's going to take me out. Because, I mean, that's what needs to be done anyways. I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. And the only reason I, feel, I felt that way is because Satan made me feel that way. Because he knew God had a plan for my life. So, in 2015, I get a job at Mary Miller Manor, and I start working there, and I really tried to get off morphine, man. I tried so hard. I didn't go to rehab at that time. I didn't go to any classes. I just tried to quit taking, and I got myself all the way down to two pills every couple of days so I wouldn't get sick. I was just keeping the sickness away at that point. It wasn't for the buzz. It wasn't to get high. Because at that point, I couldn't get high off of two pills if they tried. So I was just keeping the sickness away. And I just couldn't do it. I was sweating all day long. I was sick all day long. Even though I was keeping the sickness away, I just wanted more, wanted more. And Satan says, well, you know what time it is, don't you? It's exactly what he asked me. Well, you know what time it is, don't you? He says, they don't want you no more. You're, you're a burden to Josie. You're a burden to Zach. You're stealing pain pills again. You're doing this. This is going on. So I finished up my job. I got everything to the point where I needed to be that day. And I, I went to lunch. And I got into the truck. I'm driving down the road. And I take my seatbelt off. And I start to accelerate. And the last thing I know is that it was up to 90 miles an hour. And I was just going to hit this brick. It, it, it's, it's a barn out there. It's by Hope and it's by Columbus. There's a barn and it's, it's got some, some stone on it. And I was just going to just, boom, and just end it. I, I wanted to die so bad because I, I, I was at the point of just nobody loving me and wanting me because I was so miserable in my sickness. That I just wanted to be over. And the next thing I know, I am parked on the side of the road 
sitting in the truck and I feel like I just woke up like 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 a veil had been lifted up over my face and I just woke up and I just sat there and I sat there and sat there and all of a sudden I hear my phone ringing and ringing and ringing and it just not stopping and I look over and there's like 14 missed calls from everybody my job my husband everybody looking for me it had been like I think like two hours since I left my job that day and I was just sitting on the side of the road I don't I, I don't remember stopping the truck I don't remember saying okay this has got to stop this is the wrong train of thought last train of thought I remember is Josie's gonna be okay where she's at that's the last train of thought I remember Next thing I know, I'm driving home trying to figure out how I'm going to explain how I walked out of my job and how I'm ready to commit suicide and leave all of them when it's not even their fault. So I come home and my husband's freaking out and I look at him and I said, I need to go to rehab. I don't know where that sentence came from. It's not the thought that was in my head. I said, I need to go to rehab or I'm going to die. I said I'm suicidal and today was supposed to be the last day of my life and that day was July 23rd 2015 I remember that day like it was yesterday because I didn't wake up that morning saying okay this is the day I woke up that morning with every intention of doing another day and trying to be better and it didn't turn out that way so for the next couple of weeks I'm calling and looking and just kind of like keeping an eye out but not really trying to find a rehab and since I've admitted to my addiction the person I was stealing from just kind of helped me keep from being sick so they just let me have them at that point so I was kind of looking at a, at a slow medium okay life and then there is this website on Facebook this Facebook group called um, it's the heroin one okay and I can't remember it's the heroin the heroin addict or something like that and they've they've done a lot of work okay I think it's ran by a woman who lost her son to heroin is what it is and they shared a post on Facebook about a rehab and it wasn't just any rehab it was just a bunch of like hey we know where rehabs are we can help you find one for you tell us what you need so I messaged them and it was in the middle of the night I'm like, they'll get back with me in the morning, you know. Um, no big high hopes. And I poured it. I said, I need help. I'm suicidal and I've gone from 32 milligrams of morphine a day to just four to eight every two, three days to keep me from getting sick. And I just told them my story that I just, I, I'm broken and I'm tired and I'm lost. They messaged back immediately and said, Can I call you? My name is Alex. Well, let me tell you about Alex. I've never even seen a picture of Alex, but she saved my life. What God does through her is amazing. Because I'm here today because of the people he puts on this earth to use. And Alex worked all of the month of August to find me a rehab that would take me, take my insurance, a way to get me there. 
messaged me constantly asking me about how I was doing. Not, not how's your day? How's your addiction? How's your soul? Please remember that I need you to be alive. Alex was the first person who was desperate to keep me alive. Who didn't blame me. Who didn't tell me that it was my actions that got me there. Alex was the first person to show me the hand of God through my addiction. To show me compassion and love and actual true unconditional compassion. I was not made to think that it was all my fault. All Alex wanted to do was to get me to rehab and keep me alive. So I gave him my information, took pictures of my insurance card, and she says, we're in luck. Your husband has a good job, takes good and provides well for you, and you're going to be able to go to pretty much any rehab you want. So she found one that was available for me in Florida, St. Cloud, Florida. And I want to do a shout out to all of you people down there. I love you all. Daryl Strawberry. It's a name that some of you will remember from back in the 80s. He was a baseball player for the New York Mets. He was also an addict, a lost, lost addict. And it's not my story to tell. But what I learned from that man saved my life saved my marriage, my family, it saved everything about me. Daryl Strawberry, he was a cocaine addict and he was addicted to booze and women and you often saw his name in the headlines of a newspaper for what he did in his addiction, not what he did in his career. I flew to Florida on a September 2nd, 2015. I sat outside a national airport and a lady with a beautiful mohawk that matched mine showed up in a car to pick me up and take me the 45 minute drive to St. Cloud. She took me to a place I had never been in a state I had never seen. I walked into rehab with nothing but a suitcase and the will to live. I took my great-grandmother's Bible with me that my Aunt Lorena gave me. And if you guys don't know the power of prayer, let me explain the difference between something with you. You can buy a Bible from the store and you can read it a hundred times. And it'll go in one ear out the other. You grab up your grandmother's Bible. The Bible that your grandmother shed tears over and cried and prayed for you over. I promise you with all my soul those words will be embedded into your heart forever. It will change everything. There's a big difference between a Bible and a prayed over Bible. And when my Aunt Lorena gave me that Bible, those words were imprinted into my heart. In that Bible, you don't have to have a prayed over Bible to find God. I'm just telling you, that's how it got to me. I took that Bible with me. And every morning at 6.30, they woke us up at 6 a.m. every morning. And trust me, my first week there was hell. I'm going to tell you, it was straight hell. I hugged a filthy, dirty toilet that was, you know, not mine. <laughs> where many other addicts had held. And if I wasn't 
crap in my pants with a trash can in my mouth, puking at the same time. I was shivering, shaking, or sweating. I lived in detox bungalow. Way rehab goes is you go to detox, you're there for depending on your drug and how long you've used, how long it takes you to get it out of your system. Then from detox, they put you in the female bungalow or the male bungalow if you're a man, obviously, and you go from there. I have anxiety about meeting new people because I really love isolation. Satan has really gotten me to enjoy that part of life. So I went into a panic attack, convinced them to let me stay in the detox. They labeled me Mama D. Whenever people sick would come in, I'd sit and talk to them, explain to them what was going on, how things worked, gave them a little tour and just took them under my wing. And that made me feel better about being there. It gave me a purpose. Second day I was there was the worst on when it came to being sick. I'm very noise sensitive. The detox area is very loud. I leave the detox area and I'm outside shivering in the sun, Florida heat with a blanket around me, cold as could be, sweat rolling down my face. And this beautiful, beautiful angel, and Sarah, I know you're going to listen to this and I love you to this day. She was one of those seasons and reasons, ladies. God sent her to be a tool in my life and she said to me, baby, what are you coming off of? And I told her to lot of pain pills and pretty much just anything. And she said, well, they're going to want you to take Suboxone. Never heard the word before in my life. I know what methadone is, but I don't know what Suboxone is. But it's the same thing, pretty much. And she says, and what's going to happen is you're going to get addicted to that. And then they're going to take you off of it in two weeks and make you withdraw again and make you come off of that. And I said, well, I don't want none of that. She's like, don't take it. Refuse it every time they offer it to you. Don't take it. I said, okay. And I did. Now, Suboxone kind of helps with the withdrawals, kind of keeps you from being in that hell I told you about, but you never want to enter again. You never want to be in withdrawal. So when she gave me that advice, I said no to the Suboxone and didn't have to withdraw except for off of what I came in on, which was a lot easier than adding something. A lot of people who go to rehab and get on Suboxone, they don't get off of it. A lot of people who go and get on Suboxone don't get off of drugs. The best way to get off drugs is to go to God get rid of it change your people places and things and change your mindset so i'm there for 30 days and in 30 days i embrace that program like it is god sent i i am reading the aa book i'm reading the na book i'm going to the meetings i'm going to the classes and i finally get to meet daryl strawberry this is a huge guy this guy's so tall i didn't realize that and I'm shaking. I'm this short white Indian girl and this tall NBA ex-player. NBA. Oh, my. He's not. I'm not this stupid, guys. He's not basketball. He's an NBL. He was major league baseball player. I know what I'm talking about. Okay. So, I'm about to meet this celebrity in a stupid mind that I have. Okay. Might have, I might, might have probably made myself look like a little fan idiot. I'm not going to lie. Because I love baseball. I guess I didn't say that. My brother and I grew up collecting baseball cards, playing baseball, watching baseball. We love baseball. I have Daryl Strawberry's baseball cards to this day with his autograph, but not on the card. Anyway, so one of my counselors, he's like, yeah, he's coming in today. I'll take you over to the main office and let you meet him. And he does. He totally came and got me, took me over there to meet him. I think it was more to watch me be an idiot. But I'm all sweaty. 
done with all my done with all my withdrawals but sweating like an idiot and I shake him at his hand and I said I am I'm embracing your program so much thank you so much for building this place and allowing us a place to come to and he says brace your recovery more than my program ma'am I said okay sir <laughs> he's got a very deep voice he come back a few times and he spoke and I could listen to that man talk all day. There's two things that that man said. The first one is everything that happens from the day you're born to the day you move out of your parents' house is on them. Everything. The way they raise you, what they teach you, the way they treat you, how you turn out, that's on them. But once you're an adult, once you're 18, 17, and you move out of that house, it's on you. Every decision, every action, everything that takes place, anything after that is on you. You can't blame them no more. You have to start taking responsibility for your own actions. That's the only way you will get out of this. Second thing he said, everyone around us is fed up with our actions. They're fed up with us, period. And if we want to continue that behavior, he will hand us our misery at the door and let us go home back to disappointing everyone in our lives. And I thought for a minute about what he said, handing me my misery at the door. And I envisioned him at that door with me standing there and him handing me the baggage of the violation and him handing me the, the, the abusive and toxic relationship. And I, I, I imagined him handing me everything that kept me stuck in the cement blocks of addiction. And it smacked me in the face like a smelly fish, like, duh. Why are you carrying all that baggage around and living in that mis misery? So I came home with two job offer offers from corporate. Daryl Strawberry himself offered me a job in Florida. Said, hey, you can move your family down here, stay down here, and I'll, I'll give you a job. He saw, he, I can honestly, I'm not trying to brag, but for the first time, somebody important saw potential that I didn't. I mean, my friends saw potential. People I loved saw potential, but you don't believe them. They have to. Right. Somebody that barely got to know me in 30 days saw such such sophistication in me and, and in what I was doing that he, he thought it would be worthy to keep me around. But, of course, I denied it and came home. I came home, and I did really good. Oh, I got to see my baby girl. And let me tell you, what really got to me and got me to start wanting to get help was she saw me go into the room where I would get pain pills. And she's not quite, she, I think she was like four and a half maybe. And she says, you get, you get Papaw's pain pills. You get in Papaw's pain pills, mom. And, and my four-year-old knew that I had a pain pill addiction before I did. And my goal in life was never for that to happen. So, I got the help that I needed. I still hasn't. I still, guys, I want you to know that the whole time that I'm in rehab, I'm getting up at 6.30 in the morning, taking my meds, and sitting down and having a Bible study. And at first, it started out with just me. Just me and my great-grandma's Bible sitting at a little tiny square table that could take four tiny square chairs. It was just me. 
two, three weeks in, people were coming from the other bungalows, people from detox. They were leaving their rooms and coming in there and sitting with me, standing with me and listening to me read the Bible. The biggest thing about overcoming addiction is finding a higher power. I'd like to say that it's okay, whatever higher power you want is fine with me, but it's not fine with me no more. It used to be though. God is my only higher power. He will only be my higher power for the rest of my life. And until others start realizing the importance of having a relationship with him, you will never be able to have a relationship with this world properly or yourself. So I leave thinking that reading the Bible is enough. That what I've gone through is enough. That my story's enough. It's not. So I get home and Zach and I's relationship, man, it went downhill so bad. I was treating him so disrespectfully. I wasn't, I wasn't loving him properly. I was depressed. I was grieving my addiction. I'm not going to lie. I missed my pain pills because I don't like my body hurting. And one day I finally just said I'm over it. So I reached out on Facebook and I said, I'm isolating guys. I need to reach out to my friends. My depression's getting bad. I'm feeling like I'm going to go back into the pill problem. I need some help. Oh, Mama Jerry. Mama Jerry is a woman who's been in my life since I was a young child. I didn't really get to know her until I was an adult. And we had hung out in addiction. We had hung out in alcoholism. We had hung out in loving babies. <laughs> We've hung out in all life's little adventures pretty much. We've laughed and we've cried and we've told stories and we've prayed and we've worshipped and we've fellowshiped and we have had such a beautiful relationship. God really blessed me with Mama Jerry. Because Mama Cherry, when she prays for you, oh, she prays for you. And when, when God hears, he works big miracles. So, Mama Jerry was like, hey, you know, I, I'm just out of a recent divorce, you know. I really need some, somebody in my life. How about a Bible study every Wednesday night? Mama Jerry wasn't smoking pot. She was doing really good. I needed somebody like that in my influence circle. So I was like, heck yeah, Mama Jerry. So Mama Jerry started coming over every Wednesday. And I wish that you guys could see my smile. Let me guys, I don't know if you have a woman in your life like Mama Jerry. But I pray that everybody does. She takes you as you are. She loves you unconditionally. Whatever you say, she believes you. She doesn't second guess you or your motives. She doesn't look at your sins and judge you. She looks at your heart and loves you just like Jesus Christ does. And that is the whole point. So when she started coming, you know, I started being honest. If this was going to be a Bible study, we really needed to get Jessica right. So we started. Jessica's a procrastinator. Jessica's very lazy. So it took a long time. And she got me this book. Um, it's a... Uh, it's, a, it's one of those uh, what women really should be like through Christ and what Christ expects of her. And um, I can't remember the name of it. I gave it back to her so she could give it to another girl. But it's about uh, building your house on the solid rock and not the sinking sand. And it's a great workbook. And if you are struggling as a wife in a marriage, I solely suggest you go get it. 
if you're single and you're trying to prepare your life for your future husband, I solely be I believe that you should get it. It's a good book. And that's the title. Is that the title? Of the I book? think so. I, 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 you know what? When it's all said and done, I'll look it up and okay. I'll put it in the comments or something. Okay. To, yeah. But um, Mama Jerry brings me this workbook and we start doing, you know, our lessons together. And I start learning what kind of wife not only does God expect of me, but what my husband deserves of me. Then I started questioning myself, what what right do I have to treat my husband with anything less than what he treats me? And ladies, let me tell you, you guys missed out when you didn't marry my husband. <laughs> I am a very blessed woman to be married to a man who is so patient, so calm, so forgiving. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. In, in uh, 2015, when I was in rehab, at my most emotional wrong time, which is no excuse, I cheated on my husband. I slept with a man in rehab. I'd like to tell you guys that I was down there doing everything right, and I tried very hard, but I, I slept with another man. I committed that one sin I said I would not step across because Satan knew how to use what I love against me, and he did. And I jumped right into that sin circle, guys. Loving my husband, going to rehab to be a better wife and mother. I mean, I had every intention to coming home and just being a good wife too. Instead, I had to come home and confess another sin. He got mad at first. Actually, at first, he wasn't mad at all. And then he had a little time to think about it. And then he got mad. And then he got even more mad. And a couple of his guy friends sat him down and said, I know you've, there's no excuse for what your wife done. These guys never met me have never met me. They only know me through the words my husband has told them. My husband does not talk bad of me. So when they find out that I've done this, they're like, what? So they sit him down and they said, you've never been to rehab. You don't know what it's like when you're coming off of every drug in the world. You got all these other lives around you. They're coming off the same thing. They're manipulative. Some of them people don't go to rehab to get help. They literally use it as a vacation spot. They'll use it as a dating service. I mean, it's crazy what they use this place as. Homeless shelters. They don't use the program for what it is. Well, they explained that to him. And I, I appreciate them to this day. Because if they hadn't, I think my husband probably would have gotten pretty upset farther than what he did. But in all reality, to this day, in 2019, it's been four years, he's never once brought it up. He's never once used it against me. He's never once said, well, you remember that one time? Never once in an argument, never once has he ever called me a filthy name. He forgave me and walked away. And that right there, I don't know if maybe subconsciously I slept with him just to see what would happen because of all the other things that had gone on in my life. But I did. And he stayed. And he didn't hate me. And it was like that was the confirming moment right then and there that that's my husband for life. So we worked on our marriage and just this year, um, I started taking walks in the mornings, started talking to God, reading my Bible more. My grandmother passed in 2017 on December 22nd. She was everything. She worked at the OB department at the hospital and she's rocked more babies than you guys have ever seen in your lives. And if you're listening to this and you were born in Decatur County Memorial Hospital, there is a good percentage chance that you were rocked by my grandmother. And you're welcome because you are so lucky. And any of you that gave birth at that hospital and got cookies from my grandmother, I want you to know that till the end of time, you go down into my book as I'm not happy with you.
Because <laughs> grandma never brought me fresh. I, I had four babies in that hospital. Not one time did she bring she me cookies. No. <laughs> but she thought she made up. Oh, yeah, I'm telling on you. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, I didn't mean to get loud, but I'm telling on grandma. So I've complained quite a few times about that to grandma. And about um, back in 2008 and 2009, after I lost my apartment, I lived with grandma for a little bit. And she brought home fresh baked cookies one night from work. And I told her that, nope, no way, no how does this make up for four pregnancies, four births, and no cookies. So, all of you who ate grandma's cookies, so, okay, back to, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're okay. But grandma, she passed away in 2017, giving me my other, my other Bible that I have, which both are from the same lady, my great-grandmother, grandmother's mother. Well, the only thing grandma ever wanted, and I want, I, I have to tell the world this story, this is great. Grandma always wanted us all in church with her. She wanted them pews full of her family, her kids, her grandkids. Nothing made my grandmother happier to have her family in church. So when she passed away, which mind you, she had five kids, 16 plus grandkids. I was the first one to have a great grandchild for her. I mean, she's pretty supplied on love. Well, when she passed away, it's not easy to get everybody in church at once. Right. So when she passed away, she didn't have a funeral. She had her self displayed at our church and we had a sermon. And she got us. She won. <laughs> she had every one of us in that whole church was all dedicated to her. And we were there. And she had an, she had an invitation. So even with her very last request, was she trying to get us to go to God? And that right there is the last turning point of my life. That's a great testimony. When that happened right there, it was like, boom, duh. Light, I mean, light come on. Yeah, it was like, that's the only thing Grandma ever wanted for any of us. And how else am I going to get to hug that woman? And I'm telling you, if you know her hugs, you know what I'm talking about. How am I ever going to feel that again if I don't get to go to heaven? So I started talking to God. I started slowly, lazily, started talking to God. So I'm not going to that church because, well, I stood up in front of the church one day and I just wanted to get down on their altar and pray and just give my anger about her being gone to him. But they don't do that there. It's a family and it's a community and they share each other's pain. So they had me stand up and he explained to the whole congregation that I was angry at God for taking my grandma. And I was. Oh, I was so bad. I miss her so bad. But how dare I be mad at something that she wanted more than anything on this earth. So... I gradually, within the last year and a half, have slowly began coming back to God. And one day, on the corner of the street, with a song playing on my headphones during my exercise walk in the morning, I got down on my knees and I dedicated, I rededicated my life to Jesus Christ and said, I'm yours. Everything that I am, everything that I was, everything that I will be, everything that I will have, own, love, is yours. And I forever give it in your hands. I forever stop taking control. I for, I'll try to not be rebellious. It's yours. I came home that day so nervous because I had never talked to God, my husband about God. I didn't even know if my, my husband truly believed in God. So I come home that day and I said, I want you to know that I rededicated my life to Christ and there's nothing you're going to do about it. I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to change my life. All stronghold, strong armed. We like didn't just waiting, waiting for him to pick a fight with yeah. you. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know what I expected from him, honestly. I felt like I needed to defend myself and say, 
No, it's my choice. But in all reality, I didn't even give him a chance to say, let's do this. So when I, when, when things started to change and I started to do online Bible studies and TV Bible studies and my own Bible studies, Zach started going to church, to the church I didn't want to go to. Zach started worshiping at the church that I didn't want to go to. Zach started becoming an amazing Christian at the church that I didn't want to go to. He started men's study. My husband jumped so full in that he got so deep in you couldn't see the top of his head at the pool of Jesus. I mean, he was just ready. And on May 23rd, he dedicated his life and he accepted Christ and he got saved. And he got baptized and his best friend baptized him. The one who, for a year, the man that was here earlier in that Suburban, he's the one that's been coming here for over a year asking us, begging us to go to church with him, praying for our souls. So he started going to church with his friend. That happened. This is great. My girls are like, when's it our turn? You know, we want to do this. We want to be. We want this. So three days after my husband was baptized and declared his belief in Jesus, I said, well, I already told everybody that I rededicated my life. This means that I need to prove it. So I go to church on Sunday and I said, I'm ready. I get up in front of everybody and I say, I'm ready. And I got re-baptized. I I rededicated my life and in front of everybody, I was baptized. Okay, so we, we started this path and I told God that I'm his. Whatever's next, he will take care of. And then that's when you and I started doing the Facebook Bible study together with the women, the bad girls of the Bible. And once that started, Sherry... Doors started opening, folders started flying open with, you know, duh, this is coming next, this is coming next. And the path just opened up so wide once I started that Bad Girls of the Bible. But I still couldn't get past the shame. I can't walk into Greensburg gas stations without seeing two or three guys I've dated. I can't go anywhere with people not knowing what I did. I live in a town who knows me, but knows my sins. So I, I literally feel like I, I wear my sins on my sleeves, my shame. When you meet me in person, you'll see my tattoos. I feel that my tattoos were my way of trying to hide those sins. I started doing all these tattoos and thought, well, maybe if they look at my tattoos, they'll be more distracted by that than anything else that I've done in my life. And I told my pastor about it. And he talked to me and he said, you know, once you get the full armor of God, <laughs> that that gives you the tools to take care of those shames, to take care of Satan's excuses and lies. So I started back on your armor of God study. And I'm like, okay, so all I need is the armor of God to get me through this and no one will be able to judge me. That's going to be all right. So that was my first convincing that something big was coming up. So then I started the Bad Girls of the Bible and started reading about, you know, which ones did what and started learning about how bold they were in their sin. How they just, I guess I had this very naive idea that people just tried to be so good back then. But obviously it's just like it is here. People are so bold in their sins that they don't even see that they're ruining themselves in the world. I'm not here to preach. So... With that being said, 
I didn't know how I was going to sit here today and tell my story. I didn't know if I was going to sit here and tell my story, but I knew that this was God's plan. I've known that this was God's plan. I just didn't know that it was going to end up like this. Now, when you contacted me and you told me about the podcast, I didn't even expect you to ask me to interview. I don't know why it didn't come into my head, but when you, you said it, I thought of when, I when thought. you said it, I said, that's God opening my first speaking door. Okay, so it's starting. This is the start of it all. This will be the beginning. This is only going to be my first interview. It's not going to be the end. This is the beginning, and I knew this. I know this. But when you came back with the name of your podcast, Sherry, it put all doubt aside. You cannot tell a girl that you need an interview from that has lived in shame and tried to cover her sins and shame up with so much other stuff in this world and then tell her that her podcast she's going to be on is called Unashamed and her not go, this is God. This is God. This is so much God that I haven't had an issue sitting here. I know a lot of the things I've said has not came out in public yet, not even at rehab. And a lot of people who listen to it will be like, man, is she ever going to shut up? She rambles so bad. But this is God's story. This isn't Jessica Williams' story. This isn't Jessica Shara's story. This isn't a story of a woman who was a victim and survived. This is a woman who was lost. A woman who was broken by the world and by her own sin so bad that she didn't think there was a way out until God said, let there be light. And I was a part of it. I was in that light. I was in there. I'm not outside looking in no more. I'm not wondering what everybody has that I don't have. I have it. I wake up every morning not knowing if I'm going to be able to walk out my door with my head held high or my head down in shame. But I do know that no matter which I choose is my choice through God. I can get through it through God. If I do it through God, I don't have to worry about Satan's excuses and lies no more. He doesn't have to weigh me down with that heavy blanket and tie my hands behind my back no more. I don't have to be scared for my next step. I don't have to worry about what couch I'm going to sleep on. I don't have to worry about who loves me and who don't because I already know. Well, I tell you, you know, you were talking about us doing the bad girls of the bible and we, one of the women that we had talked about was the woman at the well yes my and if you've not read that i think it's in no book she's of john i are that, that and you said that that was your favorite yeah but this last week and without even knowing without even knowing her story we studied rahab which i haven't i'm behind and i've read about rahab before but it, i never let it sink in sink in i mean Rahab's job they throughout the whole Bible Rahab and her book and her story can be found in Judges I believe but she was known by her occupation Rahab the harlot she was a prostitute that was her job and Joshua had sent two spies to spy out the city of Jericho and the king knew that they went into Rahab's house and went to Rahab and said hey Where's the two spies? And and she lied to him. She hid them. Mm-hmm. And this and the account goes that 
even though she, because the people of Jericho didn't believe in God, they didn't they didn't worship God. But she knew enough, even though she had never met God, to know that these two men, these two spies, were of God, and she knew that God was going to give them the victory over Jericho. And she asked, "All I ask is that you, when you come to destroy the city, that you save my not only myself but my family." And that really touched me because. They always say that that is like, what do you call it? Like a job as as long as time or whatever, you know? Yeah. But that she was, I'm I'm sure probably treated so awful. Yeah. Not by just the men that, you know, she serviced, so to speak, but from her own family, and they probably disowned her and wanted nothing to do with her, and she still had enough faith. To say, not only save me, but save my family. And had enough concern. And they said, you know, put the scarlet rope out your window and we'll know. And that was saying, because the, the spies were going to go back to Israel, to Joshua, and they were going to tell everybody, hey, when we go to Jericho, the woman, Rahab the harlot. So she was publicly saying, hey, y'all, I, I, I am what they yeah. say I am, but I'm trusting God. That's right. And... Just the, the shame that she had. Not that I was thinking of you. No, you're fine. But just the shame. Like and you the said, guilt. you didn't know I didn't. my story the before guilt we and sat down The shame down that here. she had. That if anybody from the outside look in and looking in would be like, well, she's a loser. I mean, she's... Yes. No, no one's ever going to want anything to do with how her. How could she ever make those how choices? Could she, yeah. How could she... How could she do that to her family? How could she do that to herself? A lot of people look at others and they want to ask all these questions and and know the answers. But I'm telling you, until you live a certain... No, let's not even say live. Until you feel a certain way. Until you have been so lost that you just... You really feel like you're just in a sack and you're being turned around in circles. And then... When they take the sack off your head, you're still in the dark, but yet you're dark and dizzy and you really don't know where you're going or what you're doing. And that is a very light statement compared to how you feel in life when you're that lost. When you don't, and when I say lost, I don't just mean, you know, lost from Jesus Christ, but lost from all moral responsibility, lost from all self-esteem, self-worth. Like when you are down at your lowest and you feel like this world is literally benefited better, if you are dead than alive, you have no idea what choices you're going to make. You have no idea what yes you're going to say to, because at that point, you have no worth of yourself. You have no reason to do anything moral and uplifting because you have no reason to live. So what's the point of trying to make a choices? Yeah, and I'm sure that's probably how she felt. But to know that later on, like, this is she one of those stories that had a happy ending. Yeah, because she ends like, up getting married and ends up becoming one of her descendants is Jesus Christ, our Lord of Lords. So she it, was it's in, amazing. She was in the family line. It's amazing how you can go from being that lost, that, that, that lost of a person to being how... It's an amazing story through Jesus Christ, how you can go from being lost, broken... And have nothing to give him. But he will take you as you are. Put you back together. And create such a brand new thing. And how being a part of that. Being a part of his kingdom. And building his kingdom. 
it's an honor to have the story I have. It's okay. I didn't think it was going to be okay to bring it all out and say, hey, guys, this is me, drug addict, prostitute, gang member, liar, murderer, thief. I mean, you name it, that's me. That's me. That's what I was. But just as I was, I'm so much more, too. Because through Jesus Christ, I, I'm a mother and a wife and a Christian who loves the Lord and who is so appreciative of the life that I get to live now because I almost lost it so much. Well, you said something really good about Zach earlier, which you were saying that when you told him yeah. that you had cheated, that that was four years ago, I think you said, and yeah. he's never brought it up. And Not that, one time. If you think about it, you know, the Bible says that when you confess your sins, First yep. John, when, I can, when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As far as our, as far as the, the east, east is from the west. west, you know, yes, he forgets, God forgets all of those. The moment that you accept Christ, your Savior, he, he not only forgives you, but he forgets it. Forget you, forgets of the sin. And he gave my husband that ability. And he, and there are no mistakes. There are no coincidences. It's true. The moment, it's really funny how I ran into Zach after so many years of knowing him because I was just, I was living with that meth addict that I was in a toxic relationship in 2013. And I was at his sister's house with him. His niece was there. His niece was waiting for her dad to come pick her up. And lo and behold, there's a knock on the door. I'm polite. I helped him out. I went and answered the door for him. And it's Zach. Come find out he's the father of this girl. Push forward a few more months. I guess I'm on his mind. He Facebooks me out of nowhere. And the story ends there because here it is. Like, I mean, years later, I'm sitting on his lawn telling my story. I, I told myself when I was 13 years old, I was never going to get married. I was never going to have kids. I was going to move to New York, own, own, a, own a law firm for quite a while, and then become a prosecutor and just work my tail end off making a name for myself. I always wanted to have a name for myself. Well, I do. I'm Jessica, a child of God. Amen. That is, and I love your story ends up with a happy ending it is a story of redemption oh so much redemption and love and you had bought you had got me this little gift and it's called joseph's coat because she knows that one of my favorite bible characters is joseph and i love the story of joseph because all these bad things happen to him his brothers hate him they sold want to kill him slavery, sold him slavery you oh, know poor man you know potiphar's wife lies on him goes to prison goes to prison but during all this time, God is with him every step of the way. He never leaves him. And we see at the end, if you don't know the account, he ends up becoming basically the right hand of Pharaoh. Yeah. And ends up reconnecting with his brothers. That's and his right. brothers can't believe, you know, he's not, you know, oh my goodness, they just can't believe it. And he, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, you know, what you planned for bad God used for good. That's right. And that he sounds says. like your story. You oh, might have yeah. all, through all these bad storms and trials in your life, but God was with you and he's using your testimony. And that being said, Lord, you just put it upon my mind. Jessica, if you'd like to give him your number or a way to contact you, I'm sure Jessica would, if you ever want to speak her at your church with your ladies group, good testimony. I mean, this is just a little smidget, I'm sure, of her whole life testimony. She's she's cut it down to condensed time. I've tried to at least. Tried to. But I'm sure that she 
she would love to come to your church. And, I would. And tell you I would definitely how enjoy the Lord that. has worked in her life. So is there contact information? Yeah, you can contact me at 812-581-0580. And I have a Facebook page. It's just Jessica Shara. You absolutely can. Like I said, this is just the beginning. This is my very first time ever speaking. So I am a little un unorganized, maybe a little out of control with my up and downs, but I am working on it. I am a work in progress as we all are through the good Lord, but I am very, very, very excited for this new path that I'm going to be on by telling my story. I know it's something that God has made a very wide path for me to walk down <laughs> so I can reach out to very many walks of life. It's not just, you know, the addicts or people who've been promiscuous or people who have lost their children. I can pretty much understand about any situation you want to talk about. So if you need, even if you don't need a speaker and you just need someone to speak to, I'd be more than happy to be the person that you contact and ask questions or say, hey, you know, what do I do about this? Because I've probably lived it, loved it, hated it, sinned in it, or enjoyed it. So just, I'm here. I'm Jessica Shara. And I am unashamed through Jesus Christ's name, you guys. Thanks for listening to the conclusion of Jessica's story, A Life of Destruction to a Life of Redemption. We pray her story touched you as much as it touched us. I do want to correct something. Rahab's story is found in the book of Joshua, not Judges. We'd love to hear from you. Please drop us an email. You can find us at Romans116KJV at Yahoo.com. Or find us on Facebook at Romans116KJV. See you all next week. God bless. Thanks for listening this week to our podcast, Unashamed. We hope you enjoyed it. The song Unashamed is by Brian Free and Assurance from their album, Unashamed. You can find more information about Brian Free and Assurance, a wonderful Southern Gospel group, at their website, brianfreeandassurance.com. See you next week, y'all. Yeah.